navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 27 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the Oracle cloud and see how Oracle's cloud strategy stacks up against the other cloud offerings. Also, try to understand some of the key technologies that Oracle has to offer. And so to do that, I've invited two Datascape regulars back to the podcast. First, Bjorn Roast. Hey, Bjorn, how's it going? Hey, Chris. It's very good. Excited to be back. Glad to have you. And Simon Payne. Hey, Simon, how's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for having me back, Chris. Great to have you both on the podcast. Uh, Folks, to uh, get an overview of both of their careers, they've been on the podcast several times. Just go through the catalog and you will see them there. We'll also have links to contact them in the show notes on the blog. So, guys, let's just get right to it. Bjorn, how would you describe the Oracle Cloud? Very focused on business and their existing products. So Oracle has taken, well, I think two approaches for me. And but the, the one is really take their existing software offerings, like their ERP systems, human capital management, all of these things, obviously the database as well, and making them available on the cloud. <laughs> then on the other hand, they've also taken a look at open source offerings and try to bundle open source offerings into their products or into their cloud offerings as much as they can. Okay. Well, jump in, Simon. I know you I know you yeah. jumping in. The- <laughs> so I'd first take a step back and say that really for people who are listening to this, they should understand that Oracle essentially has two clouds right now. So they have their first pass at cloud, and, and even that went through some revision. Visions, right? So you could say maybe it's version two was in their first cloud, but let's just take the revisions out of it. They have their older cloud, which they use the word classic to describe, and then they have a new cloud, which goes by the name Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, OCI, which is really a totally rebuilt from the ground up second generation of cloud, I think maybe some of the technical differentiators around networking. So to make things even more complicated to start out, Oracle effectively has two different clouds that customers need to consider. And depending on really what you're considering using the cloud for and when might differentiate as to which cloud you're going towards. Okay. I mean, that Microsoft, confusing? well, yes and no. I mean, Microsoft has the same thing. They, they have the classic version of Azure and then the newer version and Certain functionality isn't in the other, but most of the old functionality is moving into the new. Is it the same for Oracle? Yeah, that's precisely the same. I would say another thing, though, is Azure at least is a good name. I think Oracle is really bad at naming things. So even how they reference the two different clouds, you hear all sorts of different ways that they call it. So clearly the new one is Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. The other one sometimes goes by Classic or Classic Cloud or Cloud Classic, or I think the formal name is actually Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Classic or OCIC. And then the new cloud OCI also goes by the name Bare Metal Cloud Service, which To me, when I first heard it, it sounded kind of backwards. It's why, why in 2017 or 2018 do you want to talk about bare metal? Because that sounds like something we did 15 years ago. But that's really their part of the new OCI offering is to offer you access to machines and servers that are not under a hypervisor, so basically running on bare metal cloud. And then they have a network a virtualization layer behind that and an abstraction layer to actually describe how you can provision these machines. But when I first heard about that, somebody coming out in 2017 and differentiating themselves with offering a bare metal offering, basically dedicated service, it sounded kind of cool on one hand in terms of I can actually get really huge machines that don't have any virtualization overhead, but also kind of 
backwards to me in terms of this is what we did ages ago. Well, yeah. Isn't that called colo data centers? That's exactly the question I raised. And then the answer I got was kind of yes, but also with a lot of smartness and the same automation built into the how you provision machines, how you provision images to these machines. And the networking is completely virtualized. So there's a lot more than buying a virtual colo server from, from someone. Okay. But on the other hand, if, if your goal is to basically lift and shift an existing application and get the biggest cloud machine that you want to have access to with things like local SSDs and uh, NVMe and even local GPUs, you can get all of these things on this bare metal cloud service. Okay. I would add, I, sorry, Chris, I would add to that that there's other advantages too, like uh, it's dynamically scalable, right, in the CPU cores on the bare metal. And I know what you're thinking, yes, 20, almost 20 years ago, we had that with Sun Equipment where they could just software enable CPUs and stuff like that, but still... That's part of their differentiator. And then, you know, you talked about Colo. And if we're opening the door on what differentiates Oracle with their cloud is they do have kind of a unique value proposition where they're saying, yes, you can lift and shift and run exactly the same in the cloud or we can run the cloud on your premises, right? They call that cloud at customer where they can take the machine, they'll rack it and put it up in your data center, but they still manage it as part of the Oracle cloud. So really what they're saying to customers is run it locally on premises, run it in our cloud at our data center, or we'll run our cloud machines at your data center and switch back and forth at any, any time. So they position that as not being locked in, which is another important okay. aspect. I, I struggle with the cloud aspect of some of the things that you guys have pointed out, but let's not get mired in the definition of cloud and let's continue to talk about, you know, the, the cool offerings that they that they have. And so why don't, why don't we jump into that? What are, what are some of the key technologies offered by the Oracle Cloud that, that you guys are excited about? Well, I think Bjorn touched on this earlier, right? Like really it is, they're positioning it as the best place and the best or the most economical place to run more complicated Oracle platforms, right? So if you want to run a complicated Oracle database, and that's probably Oracle Rack or even the Oracle Deck Exadata services, I mean, it's really the only place where you can officially run it in a supported manner. And same with their applications uh, stack and their SaaS stack. You know, they bought all these applications like PeopleSoft and JD Edwards and things like that a decade or more ago. And I think that, well, let me put a caveat. I do not think that their management was insightful enough when purchasing these programs or software packages a decade ago to foresee would become useful, but I think it has become useful now that if you do want to run these large ERP applications in the cloud, it's become the best place that you can do that. Now, the converse on that is their cloud is not really for the home hobbyist, right? And Bjorn also touched on this in his earlier comment. And if I just give you a really quick example, I was looking at a, at a home project, and I won't go into the details, but they said to do this home project, you should spin up a, a basic VM in the cloud running Linux, and then we have a container that you can download in a, in a single command and put on this container, uh, sorry, on this VM. And, you know, they said, well, DigitalOcean, it's going to be about five bucks a month, right? So I looked at the various cloud offerings and did some of the math on what the smallest compute shape for a virtual machine was. And, you know, GCP was about $5 or something. Azure was a little bit more at like 6 or $7, but the smallest instance I could create on the Oracle cloud was about almost 10 times that price. I can't remember exactly, but it was about nine times that price. And they're really 
I don't know if it'd be fair to say they're looking for accounts, meaning bigger customers that require an account manager versus individual customers, which might be the home hobbyist or the even the really small startup. Okay. So are you telling me that if I wanted to learn and play with Exadata, you know, I couldn't quickly and easily go onto the cloud, spin up a quarter rack and mess with it for a month for... I'm not saying that. I'm saying you could do that, but the prices are going to be in a different league than compared to what you're used to when you go to AWS or GCP and you get these little micro instances for some kind of home project. So if if you're a corporation or an enterprise and you have deeper pockets, then yes, it's a great way to experiment with an Exadata, even if you want to just prove out your workload and see what an Exadata would do because you're considering buying it as a capital expenditure and bringing it on-premises into your location. Maybe that's unlikely these days, but who knows? It is a good test bed. It is a good playing around thing. But I'm just saying that for the really small company or the home hobbyist, it's not really the right environment. One thing I really like is that for the most part, what you get is really the good old proven, and you might like that or you might not like that, but the good old proven Oracle software. Like if you run a database and their database is a service platform, you get an Oracle database. You can easily provision a Rack database, and you can then use all of your existing tools, all of your existing applications without much or any modification against it. So that sounds kind of almost boring because it's almost as if you're just running good old software on someone else's computer, but that might just be what you want in the end because you might not want to modify much just because you want to move something to the cloud. The, the one a service that I'm really excited about that they just released was the Autonomous Data Warehouse cloud service, which is now taking a little bit away. So you basically get a warehouse, a managed data warehouse, and I would compare it to the likes of Snowflake and BigQuery and Redshift and um, the Azure Data Warehouse, where you are a little bit limited in what you can do. So for example, you can load your schema, but you cannot create indexes on this yourself. So you're kind of limited in administrating it. But again, the really nice thing is you can, any tool that can talk to an Oracle database, which is pretty much any tool on the planet, can talk JDBC, can talk to this data warehouse service, and it can speak the same SQL dialect, and you can do whatever you can do with an Oracle database on it. So that, while it's boring on one hand, as a technical person, I find it boring sometimes because there's not that much new stuff for me to learn. I think that's also where the business value lies in that it really allows you to just take your existing workloads, market them to Oracle Cloud, and still use your existing tool set. Yeah, I can't emphasize that point enough, right? I call it, it's the same database all the way down from the very lowest level service, which is really a schema as a service, right up to the autonomous data warehouse in the cloud or hosted exadata. It's the same database. Now, sure, the performance characteristics of your query is going to change on an exadata versus a schema as a service or, or on the autonomous data warehouse, maybe. But like Bjorn said, your application interfaces and your structured query language is going to be exactly the same because under the scenes, it's the same product on every level of the stack, whereas the other vendors, it may be different, right? If you look at AWS, Aurora is based on MySQL and Redshift is based on Postgres. And hence, you might have slightly different syntax or other differences. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting strategy and, and a good point. So in those cases, what is the value proposition to the customer to leverage that those services? Well, I think, first of all, you can design your app at the smallest scale, right? If you start with just a schema as a service, 
Um, you design your app, you build it, you have growth without change, right? You can grow that into a full database if that's what your needs are, maybe a bare metal database after you get things up and running. You could grow it into a rack database if you need to. You can grow it into an exit data as you need to. And really, uh, you have virtually unlimited growth without having to change any of your underlying application stack. Yeah, and that and also allowing you to leverage all of the things that they have put into the Oracle database over the last 30 years. So there are many things that we can do externally or with different tools. But so for example, there's machine learning and advanced analytics capabilities in the, within the Oracle database. You don't have to get a separate tool so you can do it within the database. There's a there's Apex, which you can use to quickly build web-based application or mobile applications. There are PL SQL packages that allow you to do many, many things for transformations. So to me, it's really allowing you access to that ecosystem of things that already exist that are very stable and proven and that exist in many, many pipelines today, but that you can also just leverage in the future. Okay. And you mentioned the autonomous data warehouse. You know, when I hear the word autonomous, I'm thinking self-driving car, it's something I've written about on the blog. So when it comes to the autonomous database, I mean, you said you can't create indexes, so it's creating indices for you. I'm guessing, like, what else is automated for you? Oh, so this is this touches on another topic, which I find is the separating the marketing talk from the actual technology there. So I think the marketing says, yes, it's completely self-driving and we do all of these things for you and there's machine learning in it. And then I think we have to separate it from what this actually means as a technology, as a technology that uses this thing today. The, the way I see it, on one hand, it means that I should not ever have to actually manage the database myself. I don't, I don't have to and I shouldn't even be allowed to have to have knobs to turn and to, to, to do management things. And I suspect that today they might not have that much under the covers to actually do a lot of smart things there. I think the main thing they did with the, the launch of the autonomous data warehouse is to take away a lot of the complexity, take out some of the packages that might be harmful or some of the packages you might use for privilege escalation, really give you a stripped down version of Oracle, but that still speaks the same SQL and has a lot of the, the features under the cover. And then I honestly don't know about too many details of where they are using machine learning to increase the the, the, the way they, they manage the database. Exactly. So I would add to that by explaining what the autonomous data warehouse is and what it really isn't. Okay, so if I get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts behind it, really what it is is they're taking the Oracle database, like it is built on Oracle 18C, Although 18C by itself is not autonomous, right? It's built on the 18C database and it's built on all of their, their top end hardware. So it's built on the Exadata platform and, and things like that and using Rack and DataGuard and other Oracle technologies. So the way I see it is they're really taking a lot of features that already exist out there, such as uh, like there are SQL tuning advisors and things like that in the Oracle database, which will suggest how to change SQL or how to add indexes and stuff for improvement. And in the past, you could license and use and implement all these tools separately by yourself. Now what they're doing is they're taking all the best of their products and they're using it behind the scenes themselves. And they're just abstracting that layer from the end customer to say, hey, you're just buying the autonomous data warehouse cloud. So it's not like they rewrote a new platform from, from the ground up to compete with Redshift or something like that. They just took all this stuff that they already had and they said, how can we get people to really get the advantages of our stack of hardware and software? And the answer was, we'll just hide it all from them and just sell them one simple thing at the top level. Okay. 
seems like a good strategy to me. But as you are speaking, talking through this, I find myself wondering, is autonomous just a marketing word? Because it sounds a lot like some differentiation here, but it, it sounds a lot like platform as a service, like a scaled down, like an RDS or a, uh, you know, an Azure SQL DB type thing. To some degree, I guess it is a marketing term, but you have to give it some term. And I think it's doing a little bit more than the likes of RDS because it goes a little bit further and it goes into the analyzing performance, arranging your data under covers to give you the best performance. There's a lot more than just the provisioning something and provisioning space, which I think is the, the core of a pass offering. I think the goal for the autonomous dataverse is more than that, and they're already doing a little bit more than that today. And um, I'm only I'm really to be excited about what else they will add to it in the future. Yeah, right now the autonomous data warehouse is the first one that's gone live into production, but they have a half dozen more tools and technologies which are coming out with the autonomous prefix. So right now it's the data warehouse. Next is well, I can't say next. I don't know their actual timelines, but in the near future is going to be the OLTP version, the autonomous OLTP. So what does that really mean? How much control are we as DBAs uh, and administrators still going to have? Who knows exactly how that'll flush out? And then there's autonomous outside of the database. So they talk about autonomous programming even or autonomous development. And I'm not quite sure I have it clear in my mind what that means. I think they're looking for code patterns or mistakes or self-documentation, and they're going to start to handle that stuff autonomously. So autonomous is a marketing term maybe, but it's also a key direction that Oracle's going throughout the stack. And in the next year, and I would suspect at Oracle Open World uh, 2018, we're going to hear a lot of talk about autonomous and the roadmap of other autonomous features. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that chat. We've already scheduled that podcast uh, and we will be releasing it right after OOW, of course. Okay. Are there other features of the Oracle Cloud that you guys particularly admire? One thing I find hard to keep track of, but I, I think is, is pretty cool, is how they look at open source software to make turn these into offerings. So, I mean, there's something called an Oracle Developer Cloud Service, which is um, a Git repository and a build pipeline. And I think they, uh, what's the other thing that people use before they use Jenkins? Um, they use that. They use Kubernetes for container management, I was going to say. So so I had a meeting, um, I've had a couple meetings with Oracle people in the last few weeks, and they are emphasizing that they're building an open standards, which is rather surprising for Oracle because historically they haven't really liked open standards. So, for example, one of the key important ones that they did implement was Terraform right, for, for uh, infrastructure service and provisioning. And I, I'm actually really surprised that they did that. I think that's the right thing to do. If I, to bet, I would have said that they're going to develop their own implementation language and their own tool, and they're going to call it something something stupid like Oracle Cloud Deployment Scripting Tool or something like that, but they haven't. They're, they're using a bunch of uh, open source or community technologies, and they're expanding on that. So Terraform is one, Kubernetes for container management is another, and Kafka and for the PubSub stuff, I know Bjorn can talk more about, but those are a couple of examples that come to mind of things that I'm excited about because they've done it the right way, in my opinion. Kafka is one that I'm also really excited about because they were Oracle were the first to have a managed Kafka cloud service, even before Confluent had their first or second version of the cloud service. So that's pretty cool. So they don't call it Kafka, they call it Event Hub Cloud Service. But that's, again, it makes it hard to find. If you if you look for a Kafka managed service, you probably wouldn't be directed to, to Oracle Cloud. Um, but if you look just slightly on the covers of what Event Hub Cloud Service is, you discover that's basically it's Kafka. It's, um, yeah, and, and they're not hiding that it's Kafka. Form, under. So they've got Kafka on there, they've got the REST API on there. 
They've got a managed topic service there. There's lots of stuff there. Yeah, okay. and to your point, they're not hiding it once you find the event hub, right? You're saying it's a little difficult to find the event hub, but once you get there, they fully disclose that it's a managed Kafka environment. And same with the other tools. Like they're not repackaging it and hiding that they're using these open source or community type tools. In fact, they're they're publicizing it. But that leads us to another thing which you kind of alluded to, which is Oracle is quite complicated usually in everything they do to work out. So whether it's working out what is their PubSub tool or what technologies it's using underneath, um, I, I think, you know, it's not for, again, if I go back to the home hobbyist, if you're 20 years old and you're in your garage and you're doing home computer projects, then then Oracle may not be the platform for you because it, it requires a certain level of expertise to understand how to navigate their systems, how to navigate even their publicly facing sites and really understand how their technologies all fit together. They don't make it easy is yeah. my I've uh, you know used Oracle a lot over the years, and I've always admired their strategy. On they don't seem to spend a lot on on you know interfaces and making it easy. They they expect you to do that, and I appreciate that about them. It, it certainly helps with uh, the DBA career path of remaining employed. But if they're not in the twenty uh, year old basement garage or at the hacker being used at the uh, you know what do you call them hackathons and whatnot, you know isn't that a little dangerous for the, for them in the future? I think they've realized that, and they've launched a, a conference series that they sponsor. It's called Oracle Code, where they do address younger types and developers, and they really try to focus more on developers and getting them to use their, their, their services. So I think they've at least realized it, that they, they have to market more to that younger crowd. Um, at the same time, I can, I can only imagine that Oracle is selling very strongly to the enterprise there. Even though they are marketing themselves towards startups, I think they are really, really strong enterprises. And it also goes back to, to what they have on the cloud. If, if I'm an enterprise, I'm, chances are I'm using one of Oracle's applications or softwares. So I might, I might get drawn into it and get ERP in the Oracle cloud. And then I might want to expand that with some pass around it. And then why not have my data warehouse that reports on some of these things in the Oracle cloud as well? So I think that's probably the angle they're coming from, but they have realized that and they are marketing to a younger crowd. There's also a new portal called developer.oracle.com focused again for, for the, on, on developers. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, but I think it's also really hard to turn the ship around and to, to make Oracle look attractive to, to students and to younger folks. Yeah, that's what I think too. I mean, they have to turn around their branding and their image in the market to make it more attractive, right? And and really, that's the thing is if you're a brand new customer and and you're not already using those enterprise applications like PeopleSoft or JD Edwards or EBS, it's do you really want to open the door and become a net new Oracle customer, right? And right. that's the challenge that they're fighting because I still think, uh, you know, these startups and mama pops or or the hobbyists are going to jump onto AWS, right? It's the, yeah elephant they're chasing after. Yeah. Well, Oracle has an impressive market share in the database market, especially. Yes. And they've had that and they've carried that really for, for what, three decades or, or coming on four decades, right? So I think they're in a unique part of their evolution as a corporation here that they're playing the comeback kid role in a rather big capital intensive game, right? Like being a, a one of the major four cloud providers cost billions of dollars, right? It's not a cheap game to be in. And I can't think of anywhere in Oracle's history where they've really been coming from behind and trying to catch up at this level. Like if you look at the 80s, they really, they jumped out there with the RDBMS and they gained market share quickly for all the right reasons. And they were powerful because of that. Then they 
I wouldn't say pivot, but they evolved into acquisitions, right? And they acquired a lot of companies. And like I said earlier, and Bjorn really kind of echoed the same comment is those acquisitions were wise in hindsight, right? Because they are getting people into the Oracle cloud through that, that SaaS layer and those applications. They bought Sun. Similarly, and I think if if Larry could go back in time and buy Amazon, which I don't think they can, I think he would have, right, to take out the competition because that's been – so I guess what I'm saying is the first generation of Oracle was really organic growth through a leading project product rather that was really maybe first to market or leading in the market, and they were extremely successful at that. Then it was the, the days of acquisitions. Right now they're into this this race against Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, big players in a very big, expensive game, and they're coming from behind, and it's a challenge on the scale that I don't think they've ever seen before. Hmm. Fair enough, and we've kind of gotten away from what I really wanted to be at. So let's jump back to the Oracle Cloud in particular. In terms of automation, what languages and APIs are there? How how does one interact with the, with the cloud in a command line and or automated way? I've looked at the REST API. So they have a REST API for pretty much everything. So I've used that for a few things. I have to admit that I haven't looked at their command line tools. I know they have some command line tools. Maybe Simon can talk a little bit more about that. I was going to say they have everything, right? So if you want to do a proprietary CLI, they have that. If you want to use Terraform, we talked about that earlier. You can use Terraform. If you want to use REST APIs, they have that. And lastly, of course, like everybody, they have the web console. Now, I think all of those are going to have its own quirks and issues. And even on the web interface, which, of course, is the easiest one to get started on. There's bugs and there's some quirks where, like, they don't show critical detail on um, some aspect or another. But really, everything is designed for the enterprise scale, and they know that clicking here and there isn't uh, a scalable technology, so it's all based on CLIs under the scenes. Now, the web UI is only an interface to the CLI. So really everything is going through the CLI. And that's something that they disclose in their public about. There's no special magic that only the web UI gets or anything like that. So REST or CLI. That's that's not uncommon. It's the same with uh, Azure. The new features are always available on the uh, command line first. Um, I I don't know enough about AWS to, uh, to talk about it. But then the command line tools, Simon, you, do you know more about that? Because I think the command line tools I looked at is that there's a separate command line for infrastructure versus platform as a yeah. service. And that's also one of the things that, that I think Google, uh, no, Oracle has to do a better job at is integrating all these different services together. And you really get the idea, <laughs> the, the, you realize that all of the products that they have on the Oracle cloud owned by different groups and different product managers internally and making them connect to each other and talk to each other is really like integrating two different projects that should be tighter coupled. Right. But that's, to me, that's Oracle being Oracle. That's the way it's always been. So even if we rewind time before the cloud stuff, I mean, look at just regular database management on-premises. How many CLIs did we have? Of course, you got SQL Plus, and before that, Server Manager and SQL DBA. For backups, you got RMAN. For data guards, you have another CLI for that. For management of your log files, you have ADR. So I think it's just Oracle being Oracle, more of the same, unfortunately. And you're right. they they It's a huge company. They have different developers teams and they lack maybe that overall standardization mm. okay well that's definitely a you know a detracting factor if you look at uh, how the Google platform works um, it's very very well integrated uh, everything works brilliantly with each other so hopefully they address that 
Okay, so we're having a pretty good chat. For the other cloud vendors, they offer you know tools to rapidly onboard data and databases into their services, ranging from you know cool automated tools to a version of SneakerNet. Does Oracle have migration services? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I'm yes, the short answer. And the short answer is if you're looking to migrate an Oracle database to an Oracle database cloud service, that's that's really simple using backups or using DataGuard. And then they have programs through SQL Developer, for example, where you can also migrate different other kinds of databases. If you're interested in migrating a SQL Server database or MySQL database, they have they've had these tools and they basically just take taking the same tools that they use for on premises, just added a cloud connection thing to it. So all these tools exist. There is a there is a cloud transfer service. That's the sneaker net thing where you can send them a, a hard disk or some physical device of some sort. All of these things exist on the Oracle cloud. Yeah, I was going to say same thing. Like really, and, and it's really across the board. Anything another cloud ha- provider has, Oracle's probably going to say they have the same functionality, and they probably do, and that's legitimate. But also, I would spin it back to what are Oracle's customers again, right? Like if you are a smaller org or you're developing your own app, right? You, then you can afford a sneaker net thing, right? You can afford the downtime of, hey, we're going to have a box, a hard drive effectively shipped over here, and we'll ship it back, and we'll be down however long, and that'll develop, that'll be just integrated into our development cycle. Or I guess what I'm saying is more of the Oracle customers are the larger enterprises. So they're going to have to have one of these more advanced techniques where we're replicating to the cloud in near real time. And then in the future, we're going to have a small cutover window or a near zero downtime cutover window. And we're going to have to flip that way. So really, the technology that Oracle provides is, is going to be the same as any of the other cloud providers, including the VPN or virtual private cloud, the connectivity options. Like they offer, I think they call it fast connect. Is that the right term for the Oracle yep. cloud? Because they're all they're all similar in term or in names, but slightly different. They offer fast connect. So if you are a large enterprise, you can build your dedicated connections working with ISPs and telcos and things like that. So Okay. Are there hybrid options available? Like can I run part of a database on-prem and another part of the database in the Oracle cloud? Yeah, for sure. And that again goes back to what they advertise as one of their competitive advantages is that they support that and that you can run that hybrid to any degree. So you can have a little bit in the cloud or almost all of it in the cloud and you can move where you are on that scale back and forth at will anytime and you're really not losing functionality and maybe even running on exactly the same hardware and software where you can't really do that if you're using Aurora or Redshift. It only runs in the um, AWS cloud. Okay, cool. Fair enough. But you can expand SQL Server into... Okay. And what about performance? Are there any performance guarantees? Um, What does that look like? I haven't seen much about guarantees uh, from the tests that I've looked at and from the benchmarks that that we've run. Um, It looks like they perform very, very well. Like I said, you get the bare metal service. You get really big machines if that's what you need to run. You get SSDs if you need them. You get, and, and some of the services are also running on the best of that Oracle has. Some of these services, including the autonomous data warehouse, they just run on the latest generation of Exadata. So you get to take advantage of all the optimizations they've met there. They get to take advantage of all the flash storage they have. So in terms of performance, I'm really happy with them. Okay. I haven't, I, similarly, I haven't seen any guarantees. What I have seen is a lot of talk or a lot of discussions where they are committed to making the Oracle Cloud the most, the best, what's the value for your buck in both terms of cost and performance, or what's the actual language they put around that? Most performance or economic 
location to run the Oracle database. So there's a lot of talk that they they want to be cost effective and performant, but I haven't seen the actual metrics. The metrics or the SLAs have been around availability so far, right, where they're promoting availability based on the number of mines. Okay. In your consulting journeys, as you're working with customers, what has the interest been like with, with customers? A lot of them want to explore the Oracle Cloud. A lot of interest I also see is in DR, so getting your backups into the cloud. Also, actually, one of the first cloud services I ever used was their backup cloud service, and it basically exposes their object store to the Oracle's backup tape API. So you could basically use the Oracle Cloud as a tape driver in your on-premises database installation and back things up. So that's one thing I've seen. Then I've seen customers say, well, if we do that already, maybe we can also take our backup catalog there. Maybe we could run a standby database there. So for disaster recovery, I've seen a lot of interest. And increasingly, I've seen customers say, well, this, we have a hardware replacement or a hardware refresh coming up. We might not want to do a hardware refresh. Can we move this stuff to the Oracle Cloud? So I would say that's the main areas where and how I've seen interest in the Oracle Cloud. We yeah, also have and- a couple of customers that are interested in the Exadata Cloud service where they have traditionally run Exadata. And then, like I said, the hardware refresh cycle came up and they discovered that they can run Exadata on the cloud for less money and be more flexible because they can have the geographic distribution that they want. Even for DR models, they can get away with buying less DR because they know they can easily provision a new box in a few days. And there are actually SLAs around that. So Oracle will give you an SLA of this is how long it will take us to provision a new box for you. This one customer I talked to made it, made it made the choice to say, well, then I only need one DR system that's up 24-7. And if I can get a second box up in a few days after that, that's my DR. So that's that's the interest I've seen. Okay. Yeah, and I'd like to add that, you know, we've talked a lot about people who are using Oracle hardware, like Exadatas, or the Oracle database, or the Oracle uh, SaaS, or sorry, the Oracle application suites, but you don't have to use any of those. We did have one customer who was completely a Microsoft SQL server shop who was interested in hosting that simply to the infrastructure as a service in the Oracle cloud. So there's, you know, like we've discussed already, there's the bare metal service, right, which is kind of unique. There's the networking abstraction and maybe other advantages. So those may be edge cases, but we do occasionally see those as well. Okay. Let's get really specific for the audience. Let's. I, I know the decision criteria on the other three, uh, whether or not where whether or not to use them and where to use them. But walk me through the decision criteria for a typical Oracle database uh, installation, whether or not to run it on the cloud or on prem, but very Oracle specific, also tied to the Oracle cloud. What, what does that decision criteria look like? I would say, first of all, from a technology perspective, if you are using a more complicated implementation, specifically Oracle Rack, then the Oracle Cloud is the only sanctioned place that you can run it on the cloud. There are workarounds that have been published for running it in other environments, but they're not officially supported. So if you have a more complicated requirement like that, or if you have bare metal requirement or another technical requirement that we haven't really touched on is another company that Oracle purchased called Ravello, which is for lifting and shifting complete VMware infrastructures, then... You know, granted, that can go to different clouds, not just the Oracle cloud, but still, there are some technical uniquenesses that might, okay. might push you in that direction. From a organizational one, that's or a non-technical, that's a little bit harder to answer. It's more. Another question I often I often ask is also, where are your applications sitting today? Because if your applications are all on premise, then putting your database in the cloud and living with that latency to get there might not be worth it. Then again, if you are in data center that has that is very close to a, to a Google data center, to an Oracle data center, it might make sense to still do it. 
But then obviously Oracle has the ability to also run a lot of application services. So obviously they have a Java cloud service when you can run WebLogic applications, you can run things in Kubernetes. But that is also oftentimes, it's not just about moving the database somewhere, it's more about moving everything else around with it as well. And that's where data warehouses are usually a bit easier because we run the ETL in the data warehouse quite often and then this might just be one application to visualize the data. Whereas if it's a complex OTP system and you have 10, 15 different applications or application service connecting against it, then the migration project for that becomes much larger than just moving the, the database itself. Okay. If you were starting out, and I didn't mean necessarily like how do I decide which cloud to run my Oracle on? What I meant is on-prem versus Oracle cloud. So asked another way, if I'm starting out in Acme Insurance Co., and we are going to start out with a new application, like whether I'm going to run it locally or start it out on the Oracle Cloud. Okay, I'll add one thing to that, which is maybe licensing and cost, right, and the TCO. So one thing that Oracle has done is they've started to include a lot more licenses in the cloud offering. So you, so uh, if you purchase it, you want to use Oracle on-premises, well, then you can start with the basic database and standard or enterprise edition, and then you can add on all these additional at-cost features like partitioning or whatever else or data guard and things like that, compression, advanced security. If in the cloud, they're consolidating a lot of that, right? So you can just have different tiers of service. So sometimes one of the criteria is, hey, now there's this thing called GDPR that's popped its head up and maybe we have to, or, or some other regulation or requirement, and we have to start implementing, say, encryption at rest or something like that. Maybe rather than purchasing or acquiring those licenses for on-premises, this is now an opportunity to repackage and reshape our entire licensing footprint on the cloud and buy more of a, a bundled thing where we're getting a service from the Oracle Cloud that includes these uh, option packs, and sometimes that can be more attractive. Okay, so I do want to cover licensing, but not quite yet. That's where we'll go next. So licensing and related costs are a factor. What, what else? Uh, latency is what I heard from Bjorn. I think it still applies. Anything else? Just going back to the technical requirements, I guess, you know, you look at something like Oracle Rack. Oracle Rack can be difficult to set up on provision, right? So if you're, you know, if your DBA team isn't skilled at doing that and you think it's going to be complicated for you to provision and to support ongoing, you can have a Rack environment in the cloud in, in minutes. So that, again, goes to the total cost of ownership that I don't need to have my, my people prep for a week and learn how to provision Rack and set up all the network interfaces and spend the actual time doing trial and error. We can just do it through a couple of clicks of a button or a REST API or CLI or whatever we choose. Okay. Any other parameters that you throw up there? Yeah, there might be the, if you want to work with other services, like uh, the analytics cloud service, uh, rather than buying a big analytics package and paying perpetual licenses for that. Golden Gate, if that's something you're interested in, it might be easier and cheaper to do that on the Oracle cloud. A lot, so interfacing with a lot of these other Oracle products, if you are interested in that, I think um, you might get a benefit from running this on the Oracle Cloud. Okay, cool. I, I think that the audience will find that helpful. So let's let's shift gears now to cover licensing in the Oracle Cloud. Simon, you touched on it. Why don't you take it away? Like, what are the key differences? What do you want to tell us about it? Well, I'm going to start with what Larry likes to present on stage, and I want to ask Bjorn a question about this, because he likes to show little charts that show here we have a workload, and this workload is comprised of however many queries, and here's our little wheel going around of how quickly it completes on the Oracle Cloud using the Oracle Autonomous Cloud Data Warehouse, and... Um, on what the cost of that is. And he likes to compare it to AWS. So first point is, 
all of the comparisons are to AWS. Clearly, that's the biggest person, biggest cloud provider in the space, but they never mention, I never see them mention Azure or GCP, obviously. So the elephant they're chasing is AWS. But, you know, they compare it two different ways. They compare it to using Oracle's technologies and Oracle's cloud compared to using Amazon's technologies and Amazon's cloud. So that's Redshift. And then the second comparison is they compare it to running Oracle in the Amazon cloud. Now, the question I wanted to ask Bjorn is when they do that price comparison of Oracle on Oracle versus Oracle on AWS, are they not including Oracle licenses on AWS as part of that cost? Because the, the numbers come out that it's going to be five to 13 times more expensive to run Oracle on the AWS cloud. But isn't that, how did that multiplier, aren't you paying Oracle still? I haven't even tried to understand this. So to <laughs> me, that's the marketing side of it. And that's something I haven't even tried to understand. I saw the, the gorgeous with yeah. this is so much cheaper. I mean, on, on one hand, I, what, I, what I do get and what I do take away from this is that Oracle has obviously for decades, for 30 years, has put a lot of logic into making data access and using databases better and putting a lot of smartness in there. So, and obviously that'll pay out now that you look at how much performance do we get of one, out of one CPU. I think with the Oracle product, you probably get a little bit more out of it. So I think that's where some of the we are faster or we do something more efficiently comes from. But again, I also don't know if that's really that exciting because with infrastructure being so cheap and with CPU powers uh, being so cheap, I don't even know if that's the game I want to be into. Do I really want to be in the game of I can run workload A with half the CPU resources or do I want to be in the game of I can do workload A twice as fast? Because eventually we, I mean, CPUs infrastructure is just growing and getting cheaper. So I don't know how much longer that advantage will last. Yeah. And then and as to you be, said too, there's the, there's the, sorry, there's the weirdness of the, if you take the cost of running something on Oracle, where's the cost of running on Amazon, there's the aspect of how you license things, which is slightly different. And we, we did a whole podcast on this a couple of months ago with, with Chris. And obviously that is a bit of a, that might be a bit of an unfair game because Oracle contra- controls the way of how they, they license things. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, they are focused on promoting the overall elapsed time, right? Because that's what business users see is how long does my report take to generate? And they want to show that it comes out, you know, five times faster or 10 times faster. And Oracle is very committed to making those numbers. Now, we all got to take any benchmark with a grain of salt. I've worked on benchmarking projects and I know you do everything in your power to twist every knob and bell and whistle outside of what would be practical, but rather to whatever supports you getting the best numbers possible. So, of course, everyone bench benchmarks are always tweaked a little bit, but they definitely are going after AWS. They're definitely taking it from both angles of elapsed time, which users see, like they're not getting into underlying, you know, CPU horsepower and cost, which people pay. And, and they're very focused on being the cheapest at both. Okay. Fair enough. Anything else you guys go ahead. I think the marketing line that I see a lot is 20 cents on the dollar, right? So if you want to move off of Redshift onto Oracle warehouse, 20 cents on the dollar. Now, again, we got to put, there's a lot of caveats to that. I mean, that might just be on the pro, the database engine processing. There's all the other things, the, the network connectivity or, or whatnot. There's the whole ecosystem around it, but, but they're very committed to that. They also, they like to throw out this SLA and I wrote it down 99.995% availability and that's all inclusive. So that means I can't remember how many, it's like two minutes per month of downtime or something like that. And maybe I'm wrong on the numbers, but they're very big on trying to support that and saying that there's no catches, 
right? There's no downtime for scheduled maintenance and things like that. Now, I don't know how that works out in reality because, you know, we do get notifications from time to time that the cloud has had unexpected outages. And I don't know if that only applies to, say, the database engine is still running in the back end, even if their network interfaces are down in the front end or so forth. But they're, they're definitely trying to offer a better service and faster and cheaper. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I can't blame them for, I mean, chasing AWS. I mean, everybody is chasing AWS. They are the market leader, period. I also think it's unfair to be picked on Redshift. I mean, Redshift came out six years ago, was really the first completely managed data warehouse service. You, you can tell that they're a bit older and you can tell that their technology is not that great. I would rather compare something like the Thomas Data Warehouse Cloud Service. Or it has to be compared to the likes of Amazon's, uh, no, Azure's warehouse service or Snowflake on Amazon or BigQuery on Google rather than Redshift, which really to me is not amazing because of the technology is amazing, but it, because six years ago, they were the first ones to do this thing that now we have so many solutions for. And maybe that's coming and maybe we'll see more of that at Open World. Who knows? I haven't seen that yet. So far, I see them comparing to Oracle on Oracle compared to running Oracle on AWS and compared to running AWS features on AWS. And I, I mean, I, I didn't look for hours and hours, but I, I did try to look through the Oracle site to try and find some collateral that supports the numbers that he presents on stage. And in the five or 10 minutes that I spent trying to research it, I wasn't able to find it. I don't know if that's because it's truly not out there or the complexity of everything Oracle does, including their websites, or it truly doesn't exist. But I, well, I, I couldn't find the support. I also haven't found anything. But, I, but again, I, I'm thinking if you, if you want to be in that competitive space, I think they should position themselves against the modern data warehouse systems and not, and not Redshift. Because today, if you're building a new data warehouse, Redshift is not the first thing you look at. I think you, you look at Snowflake, you look at BigQuery. Yeah. So if you want to just compare yourself to, to Redshift, I think your marketing department is not doing you a favor. And I think you really need to get... When people talk about modern data warehouses in the cloud, they don't talk about Redshift. And so I don't see why they compare themselves to Redshift all the time or hmm. to even Oracle on Amazon. Yeah, I agree. And maybe we'll see more, but okay. I haven't seen it personally yet. Okay. So one of the things I like to give the audience for any time we discuss a technology is advice on where to learn and play with that technology. Do you guys have anything to offer? I would actually say go sign up for the cloud. You can sign up with a, an email address now. I'm actually going to give a bit of a different recommendation. They all advertise, all the clouds do, that you can have the equivalent of $300 US on a free trial. I would personally say not to bother with that and just sign up as a paying customer. And there's two advantages to doing that. First of all, you're maybe going to get less salespeople coming after you to try and convert you to a paying customer and to try and understand your environment and stuff like that. Secondly, though, it's a lot simpler to be a paying customer and to just not use services than it is. Uh, I found out through personal experience and blogged about it than it is to be uh, on a trial account then have a trial lapse, not convert into being a paying customer, and then at a later point in time, try to reactivate that account. That, unfortunately, was more complicated than it sounds like it should be. So my recommendation is go to the Oracle Cloud and sign up. And you can give them their credit card. And again, maybe this is a shameless plug, but there are ways that you can control your spend so that you can set price alerts. First of all, the amount of infrastructure that you can provision without having to request an upgrade 
is rather conservative. It's rather low. So you can't just spin up 10 exadatas after signing up online. You have to request increased boundaries in, in certain metrics. And secondly, again, back to the shameless plug, if you look on the Pythian blog, if you search for Pythian pain blog, you'll see I did give step-by-step instructions on how you can set price alert so that once you've gone over your threshold, whatever that may be, maybe as little as $10 that it sends you an alert to let you know that's happening. So you can do it with a rather modest spend. You can get in there and start playing around, I think. Okay. The link to Simon's blog will be in the show notes, uh, folks, so you can see how to do that. My answer on the, on the learning is, A, you, you don't have to learn that many new things because most of the products that they have on the cloud are existing products, whether it's open source products or it's the Oracle database. So everything you know about the Oracle database still is true in the cloud. And then my, my only other advice is stay away from, when you go to cloud.oracle.com, there's two sides to it. There's the one side is the marketing side. Stay away from that if you want to learn about the actual product. Look for the documentation. And the, the cloud documentation might just be not that thick. Like if you go to the cloud documentation for the, the database service, database as a service, it's rather limited. It's limited to here's how you provision a service. Here's how you maybe clone a service, but then everything else you basically have to learn the Oracle database for, which is then just a regular database documentation. Okay, that's that's really, it's, it's jump in there and try. And I think what I was trying to articulate is anytime you give your credit card over to a cloud service, there's a little bit of risk in the back of your mind that you don't want your wife opening up your bill at the end of the month and say, holy smokes, we got a $40,000 bill from Oracle all of a sudden. And what I was trying to express in in a few minutes ago was that there are ways to control that. And that's really not the case. So your risk is somewhat mitigated. You still need to tread very cautiously and carefully, but hopefully you can control it so you don't have those nasty surprises at the end of the month. I've had lots of nasty cloud surprises. My uh, my actual advice, so what what uh, what you guys are saying is pretty, pretty much standing Datascape podcast advice, which is get in there, roll your sleeves up, and play with it. But my advice on top of yours would be get your boss's credit card, corporate credit card, <laughs> since they are an enterprise type, more of an enterprise thing, and try and use the corporate card. Try and write a business case on why you and your DBA team should uh, familiarize yourselves with the Oracle Cloud, and that'll prevent... Uh, uh, that Simon described. So after you hit stop on the recording, Chris, you can give us your credit card number. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll look uh, forward to that. My pen is ready. <laughs> but that's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is telling a friend where to find us. We also love your feedback, and you can contact us directly at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. That's all we have for today, and thanks, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape. 